Hype Beast and Hype Radio. I am Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. You know, almost all Business of Hype episodes are kind of trips down memory lane the start to someone's career, the key moments they experienced. And some of them are your favorite artists, and others are more obscure names. Today's guest is interesting because it's not only a trip down his memory lane, but mine, and many others in the culture as well. For those who are aware of today's sneaker culture, craze, phenomenon, boom, whatever you want to call it, it wasn't always like this. Now, this isn't like an old head back-in-the-day moment rant. This is a snapshot, a true account of what eventually led us to today. I'm talking pre-Instagram, pre-sponsored post, pre-hype drop. So a cornerstone of the sneaker culture will always be Sneaker Freaker magazine, a dedicated publication based out of Australia, covering everything that has to do with sneakers and the global industry as a whole. Today, we have the pleasure of hearing from its founder and editor-in-chief, Simon Wood, much better known as Woody. Listen up as he takes us through the lifeline of print, the shift in sneakers over the past 20 plus years, and what he sees as next for the industry at large. I'm sitting in uh, right now, Melbourne, Australia, pretty much I think the furthest place you could possibly be from New York City. Um, and uh, I'm sitting in the offices of Sneaker Freaker, the headquarters right now. So tell me who I have in the room with me. Oh, welcome, Jeff. Uh, well, you've got Woody in the office uh, early on a Saturday morning. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't sleep, man. It's all, it's all good. <laughs> so Woody from Sneaker Freaker, tell me, are you, what, what's, your, what's your title? What do you call yourself? I think I've reluctantly accepted editor-in-chief because... Uh, I don't know. I, th- I feel like calling myself the president or the CEO or something is kind of corny. It's an Americanism, but uh, <laughs> editor in chief sounds kind of, you know, official. Sounds official. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like someone might have given you that title, even though you could just give yourself whatever title. I think it's you when want. you run out of actually having a proper job. I mean, I think anyone who runs a smallish business um, ends up doing 15 different things. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's really not clear what you're responsible for yeah. anyway, except for be, just making sure shit be happens. Janitor. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes you are, you know. Yeah, yeah. Still. But are you the founder? Yeah. Okay. Sole founder yeah. or yeah. did you found it with other people? Yeah. I mean, well, I know you want to get back into the history, yeah. but uh, I mean, I literally started on a Monday and by the end of the week, I think I'd done half the magazine, <laughs> and uh, which shows when yeah. you see it. I mean, it's pretty thin, um, but I mean, honestly had never had any idea I'd still be sitting here 17 years later talking to you about it. Word. All right. So where, let's table set first. Like where and what is Sneaker Freaker today? Well, uh, I guess we're three. There's three parts to our business. Um, the most fun part is probably the agency side. So creating content is really what we do. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at all the things that we do, telling the story of the industry itself is what we do best. So, you know, we often know more about the history of the brands and the shoes than most of the people working <laughs> for those brands. Um, but that's our specialty, and kind of a lot of it is stuff that I've collected over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, catalogs, just information or whatever, but also just being able to connect lots of people. So, you know, we just did a book for New Balance about the 997. Mm-hmm. So I knew the four guys that we need to speak to in the world who 
are obsessed with that shoe, who know are, way more than I do. That are non-New Balance guys, right? Well, no, they don't work for the brand, right. but they are just the collectors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they put me in touch with their four guys. Yeah. And pretty soon, you know, you start to build up a, uh-huh. an amazing story, which we put into a book. And, you know, without them, without access to their knowledge and their talent pool, yeah. you know, the book wouldn't have been what it is. Right, right. Okay, so what are the other divisions of Sneaker Freaker? Well, I guess it's a pretty loose digital side to the business as well, which covers social media, of course. Okay. Um, just the content we put on the website mm-hmm. and um, pretty much anything we do online. And then we're still doing the magazine. Okay. Um, sneaker books is a big part of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's amazing. One seems to finish and the next one starts. So yeah. they're sort of in, I guess they're on the agency side, but they're sort of on the print side as well. And mm-hmm. it's funny that, you know, everyone tells me print's dead. Um, and yet we're the kind of epitome of, you know, the fact that that's not true. So Yeah. I mean, in your opinion, is print dead? It's not dead. I, I think of it more of it's a, it's a distribution problem. Mm-hmm. Um, printing books is actually surprisingly cheap. Uh, and when you, when you find out how much people are getting paid to put up 10 Instagram posts, I could print 10 books. Yeah. You know, depending on the audience and who it is. Right. So the printing part's easy. Getting that product where it needs to be and into the hands of the right people is mm-hmm. expensive. Mm-hmm. There's actually way more money spent on freight. Right. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So, so it's a delivery issue. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you look at music, it's why print CDs when you can just download it? I mean, yeah. it's the same thing. But we went through a period where we did digital version of the magazine. I actually thought it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the fact of being up, able to update it all the time, adding bits of video, whatever. But nobody wanted it. Interesting. You know, I, I, I haven't seen any business model that I haven't even heard. And no marketing people ever asked me about it. You're talking no about a, like those things where like you sort of digitally flip pages, like you, sw- like you swipe a page, like that type of stuff? You can go up, down, left, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the navigation of it started right. to get pretty crazy. But how but, is that different than a blog? Uh, I think it's, it's well, it's got a, a, an end point and a start point. You know, it's, Correct, um, yeah. Uh, it's got um, a sense of like this is the content released on this time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can always go back and update it. Uh, look, the company we were dealing with went out of business. All our files were taken off the Apple server or wherever they were stored, uh-huh. and then pretty soon we're out. Oh, so, the whole company that was distributing the yeah, magazine digitally so, went out of business. <laughs> just another short-lived experiment. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like all these tech people say, you know, you need to fail. You need to fail before you really know what's going on. I was like, I don't need to fail. I just want to rather do it right from the start. But uh-huh. I like the product, but we had, I think we had 50,000 free downloads in the first couple of months. Mm-hmm. This is great. And then as soon as we tried to charge $3, yeah. You know, people didn't want to pay. So. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to retrain people after yeah. you've given them something for free. But uh, yeah, so really agency, digital, and print, print yeah. or magazine kind and of is the three chapters to the company. The print side is the books and publications that you make. Are they always branded content from a client or sometimes you just make it for, the, for yourself? Well, the, mostly it's branded content um, and we're given a specific brief. Mm-hmm. So it could be about, I mean, we're just writing the complete history of Saucony at the moment. Yeah. Um, but we've just finished two books for New Balance on the 574 mm-hmm. and the 997. And then we've already got two or three others, yeah. you know, in the planning stages right now. So those are great. I like a tight brief, mm-hmm. you know, to write an entire book on the 574. You know, I could write an Amex book in my sleep and it'd be <laughs> 5,000 pages long, you know. <laughs> That's, love it. That shit is easy. But to write an entire book about the 574. Word. The most sold New Balance product of all time. Mm-hmm. Never had an ad. You try and find a vintage pair. Mm-hmm. Good luck. 
uh, go on eBay and just type in vintage 574. You'll be there for two days just trying to go back to the start of the, you know, thread. But that you can't tell what's old. I mean, it's just, yeah. it was a fan, it's a phantom product, right? It's mm-hmm. the most influential shoe. And you talk to all the collectors, nobody wants to be associated with it because it's, you know, it's like the bottom of their tree. Everyone wants to be about the 990 or the, you know, any of those nine series. But the 574, New yeah. Balance wouldn't be the company they are today without that shoe. Uh-huh. Um, and I think to give credit to the company as well, they redesigned the shoe. They just made it a little bit smoother mm-hmm. and people started to take it a bit more seriously. Yeah. Um, you like time. assignments like that, like where you can really sink your teeth into it. Yeah, like I don't want to go back and tell the same story five times. I've done that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we do that for work. But right. to get into the 574, it's really, it's funny what makes you feel satisfied at the end of doing something. Yeah, yeah. And to tell the story of a shoe that had never been told mm-hmm. um, was really, really yeah. satisfying. Well, um, not to change subjects, but talk about the, um, the Tashin release that you just did as well, because that was amazing. Yeah, that's... Um, it's good to have a little bit of perspective because we finished out almost exactly 12 months ago, mm-hmm. that book. Um, that actually started as a 10-year anniversary project for the magazine. Okay. It's like, we've got all this amazing content. Let's put it into a book, right? Mm-hmm. No brainer. But that was kind of just at the end of the GFC, you know, the implosion. Um, all of a sudden, publishing GFC, companies... GFC, by the way, is Global Financial Crisis. Yeah. Did you, did you guys not call it We that don't one? have the acronym for it, I don't know. Oh, okay. It didn't hit us in Australia, really. Like, <laughs> we're, we're, we were immune to that. Okay. All the subprime mortgages and all that stuff yeah, did, yeah, didn't yeah. happen here. Anyway, you know, we're talking to all these publishers, and all of a sudden, they started to get real nervous. I mm-hmm. mean, it felt like... people. I think people have forgotten pretty quickly that it felt like Armageddon, at least mm-hmm. in the financial services. Um, it just wasn't a good time. Um, and it wasn't a good time in books as well. I'm, and I think... Yeah. You know, that was really the rise of sort of the crazy digital sense of, you know, the new world order sort of taking shape. Anyway, we had some really just bad deals and I thought, I'll just keep working on it. Mm-hmm. And it took five years. As an as a anniversary sort of yeah. concept. Yeah. So it finally came out around the 15-year anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> In actual fact, by the time we'd actually really hit the street, it was probably closer to 16. But um, I mean, I wanted to do a book. I have to say that book is really a lot about me and mm-hmm. my you know crazy career of just writing about shoes like it's really not just personal but there's a lot of ego in that book in the sense of I wanted to make a book that no one would be able to fuck with mm. like no one would make a bigger book nice. with more photos right more text more information more everything more weight more weight that shit is heavy as- it's over 10 pounds <laughs> uh and it's just it's not you know whenever someone ever restores a car uh-huh. This is the only thing I could really explain to people. No expense spared. Mm-hmm. You know what that means? I never looked at the clock. I never looked at, oh shit, I've just bought 10 pairs of shoes because I couldn't figure out any other way to get yeah. a vintage pair or whatever. I never said to the guys, oh, it's not quite there. Let's just stop. Like, mm-hmm. let's just pull the pin. I just kept going. Yeah. And kept going, kept going until finally I realized that mentally and physically I was probably just about done and the publishers going we're a little bit late come on you know mm-hmm. we're, we're going to hit the christmas deadline we need to print it but <laughs> in your, actual fact we have we, to make your 20th anniversary so there's enough <laughs> we got to nearly 700 pages and i think there's another 400 that was sort of nine tenths finished that you decided to like okay I decided, these aren't making it in i did i mean i actually did have to stop i mean because uh-huh. someone has to tell you yeah and you go oh, that'd be good to put in oh, i just you know 700 pages is enough right mm-hmm. so there is a second volume coming. Um, 
Awesome. And yeah, I've got to get back on the horse and um, nice. climb Everest again. But, um, but for that project, you had, there was no quote unquote client, right? Like you didn't have to answer to somebody, did you? Like a company? No, no. I mean, that's a pure sneaker freaker book. So I would say 200 pages is all new mm-hmm. and 500. I mean, just rewriting. I spent a month rewriting everything. I think there's 150 something thousand words in the book. <laughs> so even when we were finished, we still spent another three weeks proofreading it again. And also, I had to get uh-huh. you know, some help just fact-checking stuff again because I was like, if this is in print and we're going to call it the ultimate sneaker book, right? Yeah. I can't have the wrong Incorrect. release date yeah. of a shoe or oh whatever God. it is. So just imagine in 150,000 words how many things <laughs> could go wrong. Yeah. And uh, I have to say- <laughs> Do Tasha, you still find shit? Uh, there were errors? three things that we changed. None of them were factual. Okay. Uh, there was one image that came out slightly the wrong size that if anyone listens to this podcast and tells me which one it is, no <laughs> one's noticed it so far. Uh-huh. But of course, you know, when you do something that big, even the tiniest error just grates yeah. so hard. Oh, yeah, I know. Uh, but we've, we're doing a reprint now and the book been, has been super successful. And, um, you know, we're, there's actually plans. We may even um, add some more content and make it the even more ultimate sneaker book because... Mm. We're still making stuff today that needs to go in there. Yeah, you you had the honor sort of of work. We're talking about Tashin a little bit and how sort of like legendary that that publishing company is. So was it a hard sell to Tashin to get them to understand what you were trying to do? I don't think, um, you know, Tashin exists in that amazing world of the world's greatest architects, photographers, designers. I mean, they did an amazing book on Stanley Kubrick. Mm -hmm. Their books are incredible. I mean, aside from the limited editions, I mean, I think the Ferrari book came out just before ours. It uses the aluminium um, covers off the engine. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. eight thousand US dollar book or something like that. So I just love the eccentric nature of their business. And Benedict Tashin is a the master publisher. I mean, he's built a really incredible imi- you know company in the image of himself. All the things that he loves mm-hmm. is what that company is all about. Is he a sneakerhead? <laughs> I've never met him. Um, his daughter's really involved in the company as well. So they are a true you know, family company. Mm -hmm. And I think they, I wouldn't say this is unkind, but I think they underestimated the sneaker thing. I mean, they're not Rizzoli or someone that has done streetwear books or music, music books or Mm -hmm. anything that's kind of street. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is a little bit like, Oh, hang on a minute. All these people are into sneakers. What? (laughs) Oh shit. We didn't print enough books. We need to make some more. Is that what happened? Like the initial run just like blew through. Yeah. The initial run was gone in the first like month. So they and projected, this is how many we think will sell of this book. And then I, it, haven't, I haven't actually seen the sales sheet yet, but uh-huh. I've heard rumors from the sales guys that it's, you know, it's been very, very successful. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it's probably too cheap. How much is it? I think it's 50 US dollars yeah. for a 700-page book. I know. That's, I, I hear $50 for publishers is like the, the cap of what you want to do for a book that just sells regularly. Anything above that is like becomes like an art furniture piece thing, you know, like... Yeah, I, I think it's an amazing price, especially for, it is. you know, what I'm hoping is that it also gets into the hands of, I mean, we had to really build the distribution through sneaker stores in Europe mm-hmm. and in America. Yeah. But I'm hoping it gets into the hands of kids who go, holy shit, there's more to life than what's in my phone. Mm-hmm. I got to read this. Like, oh, this is, you know, and turn them on to Print. knowledge. I mean, no one yeah, likes yeah. history when you're at school, but this is kind of the history that a 15-year-old kid can relate to. Yeah, totally. it's interesting to them. And also think that, no one else has really done, uh, ever tried to write the history of the industry. Mm-hmm. And this book comes as close as anyone will ever do to that. Yeah. I mean, I would still, I would love to have interviewed Jim Davis. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of my regrets from the book that 
um, some of those old shoe dogs who built those companies in the seventies, they're getting to that age. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's so much knowledge that they've got. There's mm-hmm. so, that, and each of those companies is in the, it's like if you took apart their brain, that is how that company works. You yeah. Know, this, that's my. It comes from that one brain, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. Phil Knight's personality is right. Nike. If you were to mm-hmm. psychologically profile it. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty similar. So. I would love to have interviewed all those original shoe dogs. Mr. Onitsuka as well. Exactly. Would have been an incredible person. Without Mr. Onitsuka, there is no Nike. That's right. Yeah, I and mean. And getting his story of like, you, you often hear the Phil Knight side of that relationship, but you never hear the Mr. Onitsuka side of it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Do I, that. Do that, Woody. Get that. I've, I've seen his office, which they've left intact uh, in the- uh, Is he still alive? No, no. He's, he's, so his, he's not with us. Is yeah. his family? Like his son must is? be, yeah. Yeah. You got to get that story, yeah. But his desk is still there in the office and they've left some of his stuff on it and you kind of go, holy shit, this is, I mean, as you said. It's crazy. It's the birthplace of both of those companies in a way, yeah. You know, very few and maybe nobody has done it like Sneaker Freaker did it, especially for as long as they have. They've adapted to the changes and still remain 100% focused on all facets of the sneaker industry. The knowledge Woody and his team have on all these brands is freaking wild. I mean, you heard it yourself. All of it couldn't even fit into a 700-page, 10-pound book. And walking around here in the headquarters in Melbourne, it's like a living sneaker museum. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think print is far from dead. It's changed, sure, but it's not dead. The industry may have shifted because of digital, but there has always been an interest and a need for it. And as Woody breaks down, it costs less to print a book than it would for a couple of sponsored Instagram posts. Getting it to the right people is what matters. Think about that. When we're saturated with one thing for an extended amount of time, we need something different, and oftentimes something back to the original, back to the OG. This becomes in demand again. For example, as fashion and style go to the extreme peacocking route as of late, some are opting for using a basic white tee as the essential item again, and that actually sticks out. Digital has been so ingrained in our everyday lives, every minute, every second, that real-life experience has become something people gravitate towards today. This can go from live events to tangible items that you can actually pick up and touch and even smell. Ah, the smell of fresh ink on paper. There's nothing like that. People are even recognizing how important print variety is too. Yes, print has changed, but as big houses continue to shift, opportunities for independent voices continue to come up. One thing will never change. People will always want something that speaks directly to them in the most honest way possible. In terms of the company now, how many employees do you have? I think it's 18. Okay. I mean, it's not like I can't, I can't walk around and kind of count them. But no, we just put on, we're, we now have someone in, <laughs> sounds crazy, I don't know. Uh, I just, we're writing like four job descriptions yesterday. Oh, um, so you're hiring up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, we just put on uh, someone in the UK, Morgan Weeks is uh, now working in the UK for us. Pascal's working in Germany and we've got riders in the US. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do is get the right person. It doesn't matter where they are in the world. We just want to grow okay. and have the right people. So nice. we've always wanted to, we need that sneaker knowledge mm-hmm. and the professional expertise as well. Right. So trying to find those in Melbourne, 
can get you so far. But mm-hmm. I think there's 15 of us here in the office and then three or four okay. dotted around the world. How many, do you still print the magazine in multiple languages? No. Okay. No, well, we did though for a while. Yeah. We had, yeah, we had offices in. I thought it was so cool. Like every country I traveled to, I'd see Sneaker Freaker in that native language. I thought it was cool too. Um, and I think it's, look, I'm pretty sure that's the only Australian magazine to ever be, you know, syndicated <laughs> into a foreign language. Yeah. Not that surprising, I suppose, but um, just another one of the weird factoids about Sneaker Freaker. And the mm-hmm. fact that it's done in, out of Melbourne, I still don't know how many people are actually aware of that. It's always been written on the cover. Yeah. But even marketing people, sometimes I've been in meetings and say, yeah, uh, that's the uh, Sneaker Freaker is from Australia. And he goes, what? No, that's not, that can't be true. <laughs> The whole time, you know, 15 years, they're yeah. thinking we're in New York or something. I mean, the New York Times emailed me once and said, can we come down and uh, interview you? And it's like, dude, yeah. you can get on the plane for yeah, come on 30 down. hours or something right. to get here. So That's hilarious. It is odd, yeah. So do you, speaking on the, the advertising branded content side, are you dealing mostly with the Australian market or are you dealing with like the global brands and, and the global markets? I mean, we deal with everybody. Okay. So yeah, I mean, different levels. You go... You go wherever you can see the angle and, and whoever wants to take us on. Yeah, because I, I know what, what often happens if you have a regional business or regional publication, let's say a New Balance comes to you and they want you to do a project or a book or whatever it is. They're thinking like, oh, we want you to do something in your region. And what that also means is that the slice of the marketing budget for that region is what you get to play with. Is that something that you have to face or you get to deal with like a, a sort of a higher level purse string? Yeah, look, I mean, if, if we were only dealing with the local uh, marketing people who all support us, you know, I can't, I certainly can't ever say that we're never supported by the industry, but the budgets here are realistic for the size of the marketplace. I mean, Australia's 24, 25 million people or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, the whole country is yeah. 24, 25 million It's almost million people. the same, like, if, geographically, it's the same size as the US. It's pretty close. Yes. But um, population, it's like the same size New as New York. Yeah. <laughs> Spread yeah. across the size of America. Yeah. And within that, you've got two main cities and then sort of, you know, three or four smaller ones. So wait, if you like do a road trip across Australia, like, will you see humans? You'll see more kangaroos. <laughs> you will definitely see a lot more kangaroos. There's, there's, I think there's That's 60 crazy. million kangaroos and 25 million people. So we could all have three as a pet each or something. We eat them as well, which shocks a lot of people. They're, they're pretty tasty. I'm dying just because like, it's such a stereotype, like the, but it's like it's true. I know. I've told people <laughs> I used to ride a kangaroo to school and they're like, mind's blown. <laughs> oh Can, my yeah, God. crocodiles, uh, right. snakes, you should, you should start spiders, kangaroo even the jellyfish could fuck you up here. Like it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's the little things that'll get you in the right. end. Yeah, so I mean, going back to the marketing budget, right? If you, only, if you were only trying to kill it in Australia you'd get the Australian marketing budget, which is like... Yeah, look, we wouldn't be writing books about the 997 or mm-hmm. uh, the 574. So, yeah, I mean, we tried to... I figure we hover somewhere between Asia, Europe, and North America. Nice. And uh, I think what, that, what's great is that we're just the best at what we do. Mm-hmm. So if someone goes, hey, we need to do a book about some obscure sneaker. Yeah. Call Call sneaker freaker. Yeah. Yeah. I yep. mean, there's no one else, right? So, yeah. uh, And I think that's the challenge. We sort of monopolized that aspect of the of what you know the industry and what we do uh-huh. but the challenge there for us is to make sure that we over deliver on every project yeah you know we, i don't want to be complacent or feel like we half-assed it yeah you know, everything has to be really good i think it's also important that you didn't say i want to be the best in australia like no offense to australia but like if you thought about it on that mindset you wouldn't be where you are today 
Well, I just think if, if, if you look at how the retail industry has worked out right in the last five years, JD Sports is in most countries you go to now. You know, mm-hmm. retailers are no longer just staying in the market they grew up in. Yeah. So, you know, why wouldn't you just deal with everybody all around the world? And we're so connected now that, you know, I'm on the phone at midnight, I'm on the phone at 5 a.m., whatever mm-hmm. it takes um, to just connect with those people. And I travelled, i got to say for, you know, 10 years I travelled nearly every month long haul. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of miles yeah. to, to build that bedrock, yeah. to have those relationships. It's, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I hear most, especially after doing the show, you know, we, we get like sort of listener mail like, and they get to ask questions. One of the most common questions we get is, I live in small town, comma, small country. How am, you're in New York, you're in Paris. How am I supposed to have a chance and, and get my voice out there? You know, so it's interesting that you say like you never let that be an obstacle for you. No, I didn't. I I think it has been an obstacle, but I just ran straight through that brick wall. <laughs> I mean, I was a little bit intimidated the first time I started to travel because, you know, I'd been to New York, but mm-hmm. to be there in a professional capacity, yeah. Uh, and this, you know, I'm sure you felt this at various times as well. There are times when, especially in the early part of your career, when you know you're bluffing. Sometimes you get away with it, and sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to be able to talk confidently about your thing. And I realized that, hey, shit, if I'm going to be the dude from Sneaker Freak, I've got to know about sneakers. I mean, I knew about sneakers, but I've got to really know, right? Yeah. I've got to brush. My knowledge has to be good. I've got to mm-hmm. be on point for all this stuff, like yeah. not just from the marketing or whatever, but the actual knowledge of the shoes themselves. Because people expect you to be an expert. Yep. So you better act like one. Yeah. And you better be able to talk the talk. And being able to walk into a room when you're younger and um, – be reasonably confident and ease takes a little while, right? Like mm-hmm. the first few times I went to a Nike event at Elizabeth Street or whatever, I was yeah. shitting myself. I'm like, I'm in the room with all these Tinker was there, you know. Word. Like, Holy shit, that's Tinker. He's right there. <laughs> do I talk to him or do I just kind of stay in the corner and just not say much? Uh-huh. I don't know what to say. Oh, shit. You know, like we all have that feeling when yep. we see someone famous. But yeah. in the industry that I was sort of aspiring to be in, uh-huh. I think, you know, our name didn't mean anything. People didn't go, oh, that's the dude from Sneaker Frigger. Right. Like, I was looking at everybody else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, you were around at that time as well. It's yeah. funny that that group of people, you know, most of us kind of stayed friends in a weird way. Yeah. You know, we weren't competitors. We we're in the same industry, but I'd see you at an event every mm-hmm. six weeks. Yeah, I know. London, Paris, yeah. Tokyo. Berlin, Berlin whatever. Yeah. Whatever. I think I was in that Elizabeth Street room with, <laughs> with you. That was, I think that was Laser. That was Laser. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So... But after a while, you know, your thing starts to precede you. So people accept you and they're like, oh, I saw you do that thing. You know, mm-hmm. like you become accepted. And yep. that's a really amazing feeling for your sense of confidence about what you're trying to do. Yeah. Well, they begin to accept you if you're good at what you do. That's you could true. also be the annoying guy that doesn't know what they're doing. And he's like, oh, there's that guy. This <laughs> there's is a few the- of those around. <laughs> yeah. Um, so going, let's, let's go back to pre-Sneaker Freaker. I assume you were a sneaker addict. Yeah, I was. Okay. I mean, I was the classic guy. I mean, mm-hmm. Hikmet in Berlin, <laughs> Eric, we all have the same story, right? Mm-hmm. Let's go to New York and buy sneakers. We didn't mm-hmm. look up the internet to work out what was going to be there or anything. Mm-hmm. We just turned up. Or let's go to Tokyo and see what was around. Or let's go down the Rose Bowl and see what's for sale. Or So what did it for you? Why, how did you get hooked? Let me hear that story. Everyone's got their, their, first, like their first bump of drug. You know, like what was your first? Well, the thing about growing up here is that Jordans and even Reebok pumps, for example, that shit was really expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, you know, I've got a pair of uh, um, Reebok pumps, the first edition. Uh, there's 340 US, oh, 340 Australian dollars on the, 
on the box. Yeah. Which in 1988 or whatever is, or 1989, <laughs> must be like an $800 shoe or something today. <laughs> well, today that you was get a like, sticker on the box. Yeah. It, that's not the resale so, price. That was the, no, that was the retail price, yeah. Wow. So they, they were real luxury items. Mm-hmm. The other thing about the market here is that because they were so expensive and so exotic and sort of you know, desirable, that shit got worn. Yeah. It didn't get put, you know, it's not like the US where there's just warehouse, mm-hmm. warehouses full of vintage product. Right. Like stuff just gets used up here. So, I mean, I have a pair of original Jordans. I uh, found them at Campbell Market for a dollar <laughs> years later, but I never had a pair in 1985. Uh-huh. Right, right. So, um, so, I don't know if there's like one specific moment, but I do remember sitting in my class and I reckon I was maybe in grade six. I was still in primary, what we call primary school here. I remember I just caught a reflection of my shoes and I was just like, just angling them, like, you know, just checking myself out, you know. <laughs> do you remember what shoe that was? Uh, it, would be, it would be a really embarrassing shoe here. No, it's all the, good. Yeah. Probably the Dunlop KT26, which is very similar to a New Balance 574, actually. That's dope. Um, I mean, that just shows that it's not about having like the hypest or most expensive product, but even like a Dunlop shoe. Yeah, I, mean, I don't even know if kids listening to this know what the brand Dunlop is that we're talking about. It's like a tennis ball tire company, right? It's an English company that, made, <laughs> that makes rubber. Yeah, I made a really big shoe in the UK called the, a British show, it's called the Green Flash. That's like a very simple, looks like a Blazer Low, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here it was like an offshoot of that company and they made, um, they made there is one quintessential Australian shoe called the Dunlop Volley. Okay. A really unique sand shoe. It's worn by people that go What's on yachts. What's a sand shoe? Oh, like a, a beach shoe? You wore it when you played tennis or squash. Okay. Um, herringbone sole. Uh-huh. Just a really distinctive shoe though. Like, yeah. I'll, I think I've got a pair here somewhere. I mean, they used to sell a million pairs a year here. They were 17 bucks up until recently. Right, right. It's probably the only Australian shoe. It's the only thing we can latch onto. Uh, and everybody wore them. Yeah. Um, and I did some work on the anniversary of that shoe a few years ago. And I did a radio spot. People were calling up. I, went, I wore them at a wedding. Uh-huh. Uh, I, you know, I nearly fell off the roof and killed myself. If it wasn't for those shoes, I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> like it's a shoe that means a lot to yeah, yeah. Australians. No, but I find it dope that even the Dunlop, like you were like flexing on yourself. Like, oh yeah, these are, I'm, I'm fly with these. Adidas Roams were huge here too in leather. Adidas what? Roams. Roams. Oh, Rome. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes called here, but white with blue stripes. Uh-huh. My mother, who's still with us. I should talk about it if she's dead. <laughs> Bought me the uh, coffee, the mocha uh-huh. with the chocolate stripes. I was not happy. And I <laughs> wrote about that story in the first issue. Uh-huh. And then I get a phone call. What the hell? What are you writing about that? You know, like from your mom. If I'd been like, you know, the victim yeah. of abuse or something. <laughs> how dare you? You crushed my spirit. You bought me the wrong color. You don't understand how important that shit is when you're 13. Right, right. And that was another, that's another weird thing that is kind of gone out of the scene. But if you go back and look at those first couple of issues, mm-hmm. everybody talked about their mother. Yeah. Every sneakerhead mm-hmm. had a story about their mother. Yeah, interesting. I don't know why that You don't was. hear that anymore. No. <laughs> My mother did this. She bought me that shoe. The hell? I didn't want that shoe. <laughs> right. Okay, so um, you're a sneakerhead. What, what were you doing as a job? Were you in journalism? Were you in writing? Uh, I started at RMIT in Melbourne, uh, did media studies. What's um, that? Uh, the Art. Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. You just spit that off like the whole world's supposed to know yeah, that. It's kind of like it's kind of like the MIT. Only. Okay, is it really? <laughs> Sounds similar. Is it the MIT of Austria, of Melbourne? Oh, no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> no, it is a university, but um, it's full of engineers. It's okay. a really it was like a working man's university. Gotcha. Um, but you know, aeronautical engineers, mechanical engineers, mm-hmm. and then 
a couple of really amazing like arts courses in the middle of it. It's and then what were you studying? Media studies. Media studies. Okay. Yeah. I did radio for years. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and then, so what was your job coming out of that? Well, the most important thing that happened to me at um, university is my friend Bert Brailsford showed me the Apple computer for the first time. Mm-hmm. And he was using Quark Express. And I remember him moving shit around on this old black and white screen. And desktop I was just publishing. like, yeah, desktop publishing. <laughs> You're and dating yourself right now. I was, how old are you? My mind was blown. Oh, 18. No, how old are you now? How old am I now? 48. Oh, 48. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So you're discovering Quark Express desktop publishing. I'm probably one of the first three people in Australia to see it. And he was number one mm-hmm. or close to it. Yeah. So, but I started to see the potential of the machine. Uh-huh. You know, oh, you can make stuff with it? It's yeah. Like, I mean, I don't, Commodore 64s or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you couldn't make things with them really. I mean, no. you could play very basic games mm-hmm. or you could print out like weird shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But to be able to make stuff with it. Uh-huh. So I just flipped. Yeah. I, went, I did the student newspaper and that was it. I went uh-huh. to London, got into advertising, and nobody was using an Apple computer in, mm-hmm. in those days. They so. were still cutting stuff and taping it down like mechanically. Yeah, they right? had a, I think it was called an M1 machine. I never saw what it looked like, but I rep- my generation, I was one of the first to replace those guys who were true tradesmen. Yeah. You know, who were making the type, yep, cutting totally. up stuff with, cutting, yeah. with, uh, with scalpels and sticking things together. And mm-hmm. that's how things were done. So, yeah. I'm yeah. in that same generation. I went, I went, I learned Quark Express. And basically was like, you know, guys that were having those jobs were like cutting up the type and taping it down with on a light box. You will not find a more loyal Quark Express person than me. <laughs> I held on till the bitter end. Yeah. Until I started employing people and I'm like, I am not using Quark Express. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah. InDesign's better and I'm like. Yeah, for those who don't know now, of course, InDesign, if you know what Adobe InDesign is, that is the current sort of, you know, modern well, day owns, version of Quark Express. It owns Express. the market. I don't know. I, not even sure there's anything else is there. There is still a Quark Express in existence. Does it exist? Yes. You know why I know? Because recently I wanted to do like a Quark Express merch line. And I was like, no one can own this trademark. It's got to be dead. It. I'm going to do it. I looked it up and it's still an existing company. Like still trying to, I don't know what they're trying to do, but they're still doing stuff. Yeah, they didn't evolve. I mean, layers and all different stuff. I mean, they just, yeah. they just hit the wall and yeah. that was it. And they wouldn't ever communicate with Adobe. So like Photoshop and Illustrator were powerful, but like yeah. it was always a bitch to like import stuff, you yep. know? Yeah. Anyway, we're getting we're nerding we're out on deep. Destiny. Yeah, we are. <laughs> we're getting deep. Um, okay, so you you fell in love with desktop publishing. You started making like sort of local mags and stuff like that. Like your your you said your your yearbook or something like that. Your school newspaper. I did this student newspaper yeah. for a year. Yeah. Okay. And then when was the first time you sort of thought like I'm going to make a publication about my passion for sneakers? Well, it was in about October 2002. I mean, I really put about a week's thought into it. By that time, I... Uh, <laughs> so you thought of it, and within a week, <laughs> it was made? Pretty close to it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I might be, you know, I mean, it's, honestly, it's a long time ago. Who, who can remember yeah. exactly? But um, I somehow met Hans DC, who still works for me, mm-hmm. uh, and he introduced me to someone else. Because you have to remember then, there was no, like, unless you physically knew someone, um, you didn't share this. Um, knowledge or this passion that you had no. with anybody. No. In fact, it was a little bit embarrassing. It was a little bit embarrassing. Yeah. Yes. I remember someone coming around and just sort of seeing a glimpse in my thing and all these shoeboxes. Totally. They took the piss out of me. Like, yeah. you know, that was not cool. I know. I don't, and we're talking about being a sneakerhead right now. Like, yeah. Having more than like 30, 50 pairs of shoes, it was a little bit embarrassing because you had a problem. <laughs> I think it's also tied up in a sense of masculinity as well because it was... I wouldn't say I was seen as, a, as an effeminate thing to do, but to be into fashion and into, 
you know, that was for other, not regular dudes. Yeah. You know, that was something that other more exotic people did in far-flung places. Right. But to just be a dude in the burbs who's into shoes was just weird. Yeah. Well, there was also the Amelda Marco syndrome. I got like, called, I still get called that. Exactly. Yeah. So, so like sure this woman well. who has thousands of shoes and, oh, you have lots of shoes like the queen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, she'd spent millions of dollars stolen from the Filipino people and on right. their shoes or whatever. <laughs> All right. So, uh, you think about doing this publication. Did the word sneaker freaker immediately come into your head? Yeah, it sounded yeah. good. Okay. Um, then I had to do a logo. Okay. Which is still the logo that we use today. That's awesome. So that, that logo done, you made 17 years ago. That's the still, in the, still the same. It hasn't really changed. I think Tim Dawes, who works, he tried to tidy it up a little bit. And I was like, no, don't touch it. Just leave it. <laughs> it's flawed. Uh-huh. It's a really awful word to do a logo for. Um, but I did invent retrofit this sort of story that the freak is upside down. I go, yeah, that's because we're down under and, mm-hmm. you know, invented some sort of design wank. Yeah, yeah. And everyone goes, yeah, great. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Uh-huh. But really, it's just awkward. You can't put them on the same line because... It'd be long as hell, yeah. They're identical right. looking words. Yeah. It's just really difficult. Right. And I haven't figured out a better way to do it. So we've just left it. Okay, so you printed the first... You, you designed the first one, right? You wrote all, everything. Who, what was the cover of the first issue? Year of the Dog, Air Force Ones. Year of the Dog, That Air were Force completely One. beaten up. Uh-huh. Trashed. Um, I still have them over here, and I bought a. I bought two pairs of those, uh-huh. um, so I still have a mint pair. Funnily enough, those original shoes are now completely toast. Like the midsoles have completely rotted out. Yeah, uh, the rubber, obviously, the sole it's, is intact. But I always thought that Air Force Ones are indestructible, but they're not. Mm-hmm. Did you you wore them or you never wore them? I have one pair that I wore that's on the cover, and then I have a, a you know box fresh pair. That is that the one that disintegrated? Both of them are gone. Oh wow. I thought it was yeah. if you don't wear them, they disintegrate faster almost. Yeah, I have heard that as well. Yeah. Yeah, that they need to be sort of made pliable. Yeah, and exactly. Stuff. All right, so um, how many pages was that first issue? I think it's 32. Okay, so yeah, little 16-pager folded in half. It was a fanzine. Yeah, you know, And actually, yeah. if you look at it as well, I wanted to make it look like it was one guy in his bedroom, which oh, okay. I was. <laughs> um, but I didn't want it to look like I was trying to pretend to be a proper magazine mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. sections and page. there's never been a page number in the magazine. It's to this day? Yeah. Why did, Drove our German office crazy. Yeah, it would drive me crazy too. Well, How I do you figured, reference an edit well, on a page? Well, I mean, you can <laughs> look at the PDF or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we were like, why? Like, is anyone going to say, oh, on page 66 of Sneaker Yes, Breaker, yes, uh, people do that, Woody. Do they? <laughs> Yes, okay. well, <laughs> they sorry, were invented Jeff. for a reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we never had a table of contents until recently as well. Wow. I mean, that's one of the reasons you got to turn to page 622 to look at this picture or the story. That, that must, that's cool. I mean, it's well, your one own of the other reasons thing. Is the magazine's quite small and the page number's just getting away. I, I mean, I, <laughs> it's, I went and did speak to a couple of stores and they said, look, if you do a magazine, just make it small because I don't have any space on the counter to put it. If it's small, I could just fit it in under the, you know, Wherever. Okay. So that was kind of something. I, and also, it's really economical. I mean, it's, yeah. you can still have 200 pages, but it's not heavy. That's I mean, cool. shipping is expensive. So you had no desire to go like, you know, A0 or like big magazine, like tabloid size? No, I mean, we've had other outlets to do other right. stuff. But I, I would like to make the magazine bigger. In fact, we're probably considering it this year just because I'm over that small size. I mean, it's very, you know, 700 words on a page with one picture is kind of, that's it. Yeah, you know it's very hard to you can't design it really. You can't flex. It's, it's, it's always been like so much stuff jammed in there as right. tight as possible. I know. You know I remember. You remember out. Frank magazine? Yeah. It's yeah. Well, they were even smaller. smaller. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was cool because you could like put it in your back pocket, but 
Yeah, you can't really I know. Get much I know. out of it. 150 words on a page, and and that was it. Yeah, yeah. It is so interesting to hear Woody break down the thinking behind Sneaker Freaker, from the content to the design. Essentially, a fanzine, all the way to a 17-year-long magazine, and now a book with Tashin. Everything he did had a purpose. Now, it didn't need an existential philosophical reason behind the design, but the size, the decision for no page numbers, the art direction, it was all chosen for a reason. If you don't know what Sneaker Freaker is and you haven't seen what this magazine is all about, do it now. This was one guy, Woody, diving deep into a bubbling sneaker world that by no means was at the level that it is today. Now today, it's a no-brainer for major publications and sports networks to have dedicated sneaker coverage. But at that time back then, when Woody launched his magazine, this was still a very niche culture. And he didn't have the convenience of social media to connect everyone around the world all the time. So here's the lesson. If Woody was able to create Sneaker Freaker with the resources he had back then, all the way down in Australia, with no social media, what is stopping you from going all in on your idea today? We've heard it from many, many Business of Hype guests in the past. From legendary skateboarder Eric Costin, BFA co-founder David Pruding, even Jaden Smith himself. Creating what you want to create is the easiest it's ever been today. But rising above the pack and getting noticed, that's the hurdle. Using the tools we have today to tell an honest, authentic story is the way to do it. That was true back then, and it's still true today. Um, all right, so at what point did you start making some actual money from Sneaker Freaker? I think, it, I think it was always profitable as such. I mean, we had took a while to get the brands to come on board here. I think sometime, I, I mean, I got enormous amount of press. It was a real novelty act. Mm-hmm. This crazy guy loves sneakers. I mean, it still is to some extent, mm-hmm. even though your grandmother knows about it and your 10-year-old yeah. kids are into it. Um, but still, to my story is interesting to people because mm-hmm. how did this crazy guy from Australia build this multinational publishing company about one thing? It's, it's odd. Yeah. Even I can see it's odd. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think around issue two, I mean, Colette emailed me and said they wanted to order 60 copies or something. It's like, shit, now I've got to go and work out how to ship stuff internationally. Do I, go? I went to the post office. It was going to be ridiculous. So I had to learn then how to sort of become an international publishing magnate. Yeah. Really, I'm still in the bedroom again, you know, shipping stuff out on the you know, midweek or whatever. But that was the first sign of people were interested in what I was doing mm-hmm. outside Melbourne, let, yeah. alone even, let alone even within Australia. How were you getting the word out back then? We started a blog. I mean, we started sneakerfreaky.com. Mm-hmm. Right away from yeah. the first issue. Yeah, pretty close. I had a friend of mine who built the website. Mm-hmm. And I was just telling someone last week, WordPress didn't exist. Wow. So we had this to build- WordPress. We had to build uh, our own. He built a publishing system uh-huh. that we used. And actually, if you go on- um, What's the web? There's a website you can go on where you can look at everyone's old websites. Yeah, the Wayback Machine. Wayback Machine, yeah. 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 Uh, you can go back and see our original one. I mean, it's quite funny <laughs> now. I think I'd put up one thing every day or every second day. Uh-huh. Photos were, you know, just terrible yeah. because the cameras were. I mean, I'm, one one point two megapixel camera. Yeah, I mean, your phone kills it. Yeah, today. But um, I remember I bought a uh, a Canon. Was it a Cool Shot or something? This thing that had uh-huh. a swivel in the middle. Okay, and you could kind of rotate it. It looked cool. Yeah. I've still got it here somewhere. 
but I think it was only $4,000 or something and it probably took a three meg yeah. shot or something. <laughs> but, the, you know, the photos weren't great. It had no depth of field. I mean, no. they, the shoes yeah. just looked flat and horrible. Um, but so I think that, you know, if you look at technology with mm-hmm. the, the magazine, yeah. when the 5D came out, mm-hmm. I think that camera is underappreciated for the change in photography. Yeah. Um, and I mean, also with the iPhone or whatever as well, but that 5D, 5D gave people like me who could teach themselves, you know, the basics, mm-hmm. the chance to be professional photographers right. for the first time. Word, definitely. You know, because a friend of mine bought a, uh, I mean, he bought a Hasselblad back for his, you know, it was a $100,000 investment. <laughs> yeah, right. no, I'm not going there, but to have a three to $5,000 camera that yeah. was still professional quality. I, think I know. And still, still the best camera. We, we have three of them here Yeah, in it's office. a workhorse. And people make films on a 5D. It's yeah. crazy. Um, okay, so like someone like a Sarah from Colette, like blesses you and somehow... The word about Sneaker Freaker catches her in Paris and she places an order, right? Like, stuff like that must have been like, holy shit, how is this happening? I just wanted to get free shoes. You missed that part as well. <laughs> okay. That's still my, that's my great urban myth. You know, yeah. Not that it's an urban myth, but I mean, that's really what I wanted. I wanted to be somebody. That, the plug. You wanted like the Yeah, hookups. I mean, that's what the influencers want today, right? It's yeah. kind of the same thing. So the best way to do that then was to have a magazine. <laughs> we'll send you shoes so you can put them in the magazine. And then keep the shoes. And then I keep them, yeah. yeah that yeah. was the kind of... Are you sample size? Trick. No, I'm an 11. Oh, okay. Well, I they send you your think size. how many shoes I would have if I was a, <laughs> if I was a nine. Oh, my God. Um, how about, do you remember the first time that like a brand sort of blessed you? Well, probably that first trip to the US. By you know, who? who? Who would have been Nike, yeah. So Nike was the first brand that sort of like. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, they, look, you know, there's a reason they're the biggest and the best. I mean, they're onto stuff and they sort of brought me into that family, I suppose, and exposed me to the global, mm-hmm. what was happening globally. Because if you think 2002, what were you doing? 2002? You would, you'd been to, when did you go to Japan to talk to Hiroshi for the magazine? 99. 99, so that's yeah. even three years before. So Eric and Peter were, had started sneakers and stuff around yep. that time. SNS, Undefeated's yeah. not far off that. Mm-hmm. Um, A-Life, I think, was going on the Lower East Side. I remember going to meet Tony just after the blackout uh-huh. and all the local kids busted in and stole all his shoes. Yeah, yeah. The original um, A-Life, the two-story yeah. one. Um, and, you know, Hikmet was in Berlin doing singing. And we all had mm-hmm. similar backgrounds and experiences. Yeah. It took me a little while to sort of, I mean, we, I don't Fine. think we all knew that at the time, uh-huh. but it's funny looking back on that. I mean, Stash was there as well yeah. around that time. I want to I highlight too a, a point that you just made. I just want to make sure that people understand this. Like, Nike is so known for doing big things really well, right? Like the Kaepernick campaign and like, you know, the, the Women is Crazy one, like just recent stuff that I'm name dropping that they've done. And Nike's so well known for doing these big things globally really well. But let's not overstate that the reason why maybe Nike is so good at what they do is because of what you just said. They are able to sniff Woody out in Melbourne making a fucking zine, a 32-page zine Right, they're able to sniff you and be like, "This is the guy we need to fly to America," and I think that is often overstated as like the true genius of what Nike does really well. Yeah, look, even I mean, Collet was to me the greatest store in the world yep. in a lot of different ways. I mean, yep. the fact they found me mm-hmm. and wanted to order the magazine is still amazing. I mean, we ended up having a launch party there. I took my son, who's here today. Mm-hmm. He's fourteen. <laughs> he was three months old when we took him <laughs> to and, Paris. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was pretty cool, actually. He had a little um, black jumpsuit on that said security. We just took him with, <laughs> everywhere with us. Um, 
but yeah, you're right. I mean, it doesn't, I, I, you know, you made that point before. I, mm-hmm. I really don't think it matters where you are in the world now. If you've got something magical, talent, creative, same thing with, um, you know, if you can write, if you can draw, if you're an artist, it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter where you are. Mm-hmm. But eventually you will get drawn into that international, the big if, city kind of life. If anything, it's easier now, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Right. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's what I mean today. Today's, in today's climate of technology and interconnectedness. And often, oftentimes you, you're talking to people and you don't even know where they are anyway. Mm-hmm. It, it oftentimes doesn't matter where you're from. Yeah. I've done whole projects with people over WhatsApp and I have no idea where they are in the world. It's totally fine. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving forward a little bit, you said it was profitable from from the beginning. Was it a financial struggle? Like, were you were you just like stacking chips right from the beginning? No, no. Look, I, I wasn't wasn't living in you know thinking about moving to the Bahamas anytime soon. I'm still not. But um, I mean, I didn't have any employees for the first six years or something. I had Hans who worked for me. I had a few people doing bits and pieces, but mm-hmm. I was also doing I was doing jobs in the film industry. Okay, so you uh, had doing other, other things, yeah. Work and well, actually, part of Sneaker Freaker was that I thought that it would be a showcase of my design work, okay, and that I would get clients from it. Mm-hmm. But the attrition rate of my existing clients, as I started to get more consumed by doing the magazine, I lost them all. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's funny how it's turned out. As I've said, we're an agency now, and I'm doing the work I want to do yeah. for Nike, uh, Adidas, Puma, New right. Balance, whoever. Yeah. So yeah, in the long the long game, I did. I was probably vindicated. Mm-hmm. But for a period there, I was like, oh, shit, I'm losing all my clients. They're like, I can't keep up with them. Because I'm in America for two weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know, when, you're a, when you're a one-man band, right. you just can't disappear for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it paid my wage. I was yeah. able to live. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, didn't, I wasn't thinking about getting two employees and then four and then six. For a, it took me quite a few years to sort of cement it. Yeah. I had to take it more seriously, actually. And I was a bit conservative because up to that point, I'd done all these different things, but... They were never really designed to become big. Yeah. They were just things that I wanted to do. They were like hobbies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sort of professional hobbies. I mean, I had a mm-hmm. t-shirt label. I'd, you know, done little things here and there. Um, but what I, you know, what I didn't see in Sneaker Freaker was a long-term thing. I mean, I kind of thought maybe this is like yo-yos or hula hoops and this whole thing will just disappear. Yeah. I certainly wasn't thinking, yeah, in 15 years, we'll all be buying shit on our phone and, uh, you know, the whole world's going to change. I mean, it's... Blows my mind to see how it's turned out as well. Yeah, I, I'm I'm in the same boat. Sort of like every three years, I would look at sneaker culture back in the day, and I think like this is gonna this is gonna end. It's gonna be like comic books or like you know people who collect baseball cards and stuff. There'll be a bubble, it'll explode, and then we will have had all a good time and a nice laugh about it. Yeah, I mean, but now, it just keeps going. Now you've got thirteen year old kids dropping ten Gs at a sneaker con or whatever on mm-hmm. shoes, and I think that reselling part of it in conjunction with this idea of the hustle. Yeah, in modern life, and you see that everywhere. Kids are attracted to this idea of making money out of it. Yeah, I'm not saying I endorse it, or I, you mm-hmm. know, it but just, I'm, it, I'm, is. it is. It happens. It is what it is, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think the the sort of celebrity pop cultureness that is latched onto sneakers now, like now, it's like someone who only cared about Britney Spears or Ariana Grande, you know, is like now, like, oh wow, I want to be in the sneakers too, for just because like they happen to be in it, you know? Yeah, that stuff was corny for a while, wasn't it? When everybody sort of jumped on it and were pretending they'd been into it and then you find what out like it was that shit is well I, I well it's probably more <laughs> shocking when it started you know now yeah. it's now it's just like, oh, another you know another pylon but um right there were quite a few things where i don't know i guess that's the zeitgeist thing right it starts off small it gets kind of bigger and then it just explodes at some point yeah and you get all sorts of randoms all trying to come in and chip in but i, I mean i'm sort of resistant to that notion of sneaker culture as well because it's not a culture to me but there hasn't been a better 
term for it, but that explains the encapsulating sense of a bubble around, mm-hmm. you know, at the, at the core of it is like the Chuck Taylor, that one shoe, right, mm-hmm. that started everything. But it's that, those layers that go deep now. Yeah. And there's so many different ways to interact with it. If you don't want to call it a culture, what do you call it? Oh, yeah, that's what I mean. I haven't really, I mean, you know, I'm another word. I don't that, think it's a culture though. Well, that's what I mean. I was resistant to that term, but yeah. I've sort of come to, to accept it. And uh-huh. I, think, I think also there's been times when I thought, man, this is a really materialistic bullshit thing, right? Mm-hmm. This whole thing, uh, you Spending, know, yeah, money yeah. and all that Corporate sort of stuff. Corporate-led, like, yeah. That's not necessarily who I am, but I mean, I want to get paid. I want to I grow my business. I want to do more stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm part of it as well. So, I mean, yeah. you could kind of say I'm contributing to the cause of it all. Um, but there's been times when we've done an event. I remember an event a long, long time ago. It was a raffle situation. It was one of our collabs. It was at the provider store. And this young kid, it was really striking at the time. This kid was maybe 13. He'd come with his dad, dragged his dad in there. His dad was so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was glued to the wall down the back. He just didn't. Yeah. And this kid, I was praying this kid's name would get pulled out of the hat and it did. I uh-huh. might have even manufactured it somehow. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. But then there's this great photo of the two of them and he looks so happy. Uh-huh. And his dad is there and he's, I think his hand is just on his son's shoulder. And I thought, isn't that great? Like they shared a memory at an event that Which we created. Is. Yeah. And it kind of rebalanced yeah. that sense of totally. you know, money and obsession with hustling sort of thing with, oh, this is a real thing. Like yeah. he created a memory with his son and maybe, who knows, you know, maybe they had something to talk about in the future or led it to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I still remember that obviously Yeah, as a point, you know, a yeah, real I have, moment. I have friends that sort of aren't into the sneaker culture thing at all. And they, they all often bring up like, you know, you're just bringing, you're just doing this consumerism thing and like all, you know, you're just making people spend more money on stuff. And you could look at anything in that way, but really I, I've been involved in this culture long enough where I've seen like, I know this sounds so cliche and corny, but like I've seen, sneakers change people's lives like for the better like they totally change the whole whether it's like they left their corporate desk job or maybe like you know have you heard the story of mayor trying to get a pair of pigeons while in jail was he i haven't heard that story yeah like he got a pair of og pigeons while imprisoned so like just to have like a goal while he was in jail yeah like i it's bigger than sneakers it's bigger than just like pieces of rubber and and yeah that's right it's never been about it's never been about the thing Yeah, yeah yeah It's it's much deeper than that, and I think Sneaker Freaker does a great job at like covering these deeper stories and just product drops. Yeah, I I kind of felt we have a public broadcaster here called the ABC, which you know is got really strict rules around you know the ethics and like if they do politic political stuff, they're like we have to have fifty percent from the left, fifty percent from the right. So things like I always felt like I wanted to be like the ABC. Of sneakers. sneakers. Um, <laughs> that's a long bow for anyone to listen to it, but I felt like I, felt like I kind of wanted to do it responsibly. Uh-huh. Probably, probably a better way to put it, actually. That's probably a crap analogy, but... Um, no, have you know, like, some journalistic integrity yeah, to what you're doing. Yeah, I want to do yeah. the story right. So what kind of... I feel, like, I feel like we're sort of a... Not a trade union for sneakerheads, but you know what I mean? We sort of represent them in between the brands. Mm-hmm. And I think especially... That was probably more true at the start when... The, I remember when we had a forum. Remember them? Yeah, forums. Yeah, <laughs> the local one. He was savage. I mean, <laughs> in fact, there was some really, really amazing stuff written. We just closed it down um, a year or so ago. Finally, it was dead a long time before that. But uh-huh. um, a lot of those kids who grew up with that are now in their sort of thirties, and they were really emotional about the passing of it because it was such an important part of their lives. Yeah, and they learned how to carry themselves. They learned how to talk. They met each other. Like wow. it's really, 
really deep stuff. And I was actually almost cried when I read Mark from Saintside's piece. It was how important that thing was. Like Damn, you said, it kind of gave cool. him something to aspire to. Right, exactly. Um, now I can't even remember what, where this story was going, but um, <laughs> but what I realized is, yeah, this stuff is important, and mm -hmm. you, you you know we should be representing those kids mm -hmm. and the brands. Yeah, so sorry, yeah, the forum. My point was they, you know, pre-social media, this idea that kids were out there critiquing and talking back to brands did not exist. Yeah. And there were so many times when someone from a brand would ring me up and say, you can't let that kid say that. That's bullshit. Like, yep. that's, that's factually incorrect or that's just like wild opinion mm -hmm. or whatever. And it was really shocking for brands. Yeah. I mean, it came later, especially with Facebook and Instagram, but mm -hmm. at that time on the forums for people yeah. to be talking about stuff. Yep. And Nike Talk was around for a long, long time before that, but they were really shocked. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing for having a platform where a kid can just express their feelings about a shoe, right? Or about the industry. It's another thing to acknowledge that the brand is reading that comment and now reacting in some way, whether it's positive, negative, or not. They're reading like these ki these random 15-year-old kid in the middle of nowhere who thinks this, a reaction is happening off of that. And that conversation, in my opinion, was really one of like the biggest difference makers in sneaker culture. Because back in the day, like if you go back to like Andre Agassi, Bo Jackson, Michael, Michael Jordan era, it was fully brand make stuff. We present it to you. Well, brand down, right? Brand down. Brand down you, there's yeah. no upward conversation. And it was really, like you said, social media, where it's like all of a sudden now the designer of that shoe is looking at a, a forum to see how kids like it. Whole new world. Yeah, well, not only that, but I mean, that, that retro period through the, you know, the, the first 10 years of the 2000s, there were so many times when um, I'd write about a shoe and then it would turn up 12 months later or 18 months later. And I kind of started to realize that there's one particular article called Retro Runner Rehab. I think every shoe in that story ended up being um, um, remade. <laughs> so, and some of them really did well and some of them didn't. So you start to realize that, hey, people in the industry are actually reacting to yeah. what we've written or my opinion. Yeah. And as crazy or as one-sided my, as my opinion is, that was sort of seeing that it held weight. Did I'm you... pretty sure the Gel Mai came back of, out of that story, yeah. which is an amazing shoe. I don't think it's been super successful, but Hiroshi had a pair. Uh-huh. And I got the photo of his pair from, some, from a Japanese magazine and we put it in there. I was like, this shoe's amazing. Yeah. Never seen a vintage pair. I don't know how many were made. It's a really obscure shoe, mm -hmm. but they did bring it back. Um, and so that's, that's a weird sense of power, I think, that you have when people yeah. are reacting to what you've are you, said. And are, are you very cognizant of it when you write a story? Like, do you try to check yourself to make sure you're not like, either making or breaking someone's job or career? <laughs> well, I think, I think we... Look, I think there's less Wild West commentary. You know, I don't think you see too many opinions in streetwear online culture sort of at the moment. Mm. We're also bound up in keeping our clients happy and everything and when we have people to feed and yeah, all yeah, the rest yeah. of it. But I do think there is something to be said for we, we post the stuff we like. Mm -hmm. There's not much point shitting on something. Mm -hmm. And honestly, if you haven't seen the shoe, for starters, if you're just looking at a photo, that's a one-dimensional view of it yes, as well. So, totally, yes. Um, so, but, so I do think, you know, we do tend to be positive. I think, I think it's always, like, you know, I'm a massive student of The Face magazine. That was the, the face, greatest yeah, magazine from, yeah. in my lifetime, mm -hmm. although I do love Ray Gun and, you know, a lot of those others from that period as well. But The Face, I mean, I pretty much moved to London because of that magazine. <laughs> they made it see, they sold that city in a way that 
no one has probably since. You know, they mm-hmm. made it seem exciting. Yep. Whether it was clubbing or fashion or I yeah. mean, there's a lot of sneaker ads if you go back and look at those. Yeah. Um, issues in the '90s as well. But I think it's a magazine's right to sort of be overly effusive about things to build something up. Like in mu- in a music thing, mm-hmm. they can turn three bands into a a movement. Yep. You know, by by just taking their idea one step yeah, sort of yeah. further. So there's a lot I, of power in that. I think I think you know that there's the opposite to power too. too, though. You could dismantle as well. And you, but you don't think you should? They should. Well, I'm do trying that. to think whenever we've that we're, whenever that's really been a situation. I think I think we're. I think I'm able to write around stuff now where I know what, I know what the right thing to say is. I know mm-hmm. what the brand wants me to say. I'm not going to say it in the words that they want me to use. <laughs> right. You're not like going to just write the press release. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you can still have, maintain your honesty. When Sneaker Freaker was growing, it was a different time, not only in sneakers, but in overall brand and consumer interaction. Today, there's basically a dialogue between the two in almost all industries beyond sneakers, thanks in part to social media. Enough online conversation can happen now and something can be pulled off the shelves or on the opposite end, something totally new can be created. The consumers have influence on how the brands move, just like how the brands have always influenced and persuaded the consumers. As Woody mentioned, back in the day, it was purely a top-down system with consumers only having online forums to discuss what a brand's been up to. That's why it's so major when someone like Nike would take notice. Who knew they were listening the entire time? We spoke freely on these forums, and Woody wrote openly about his opinions on sneaker brands and products on Sneaker Freaker. He's an authentic, real person with a real voice. Substitute sneakers with almost any other topic, fashion, sports, tech, economics, and you will find the same exact effect. People who speak from an authentic place will find an audience and they will be heard. I, I remember um, back in the day, I used to have a blog. I don't know if you remember, called yeah. To Darren Hudson. It was a WordPress blog. And it was sort of my homage to a childhood friend. And I remember when Nike ID first came out, I wrote a blog post about basically, in a nutshell, how much I did not like Nike ID. And then I remember, like, I got a phone call from Nike. This is pre-me, like, you know, pre-pigeon stuff, right? And I'm like, I can't believe I'm getting a phone call from Nike about how they would like for me to take the post down. Like, it was a WordPress blog about Nike. Like, what, what am I doing to Nike ID? Am I really, like, hurting sales, you know? Yeah, what did you like about it? What don't I like about it? Mm. <laughs> We're going to get into that story right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you I'm know, intrigued. Woody you know, just turned on his interviewer hat. He's like, well, <laughs> Jeff, what didn't you like about Nike ID? Well, I, I, to me, it busted that wall between the consumer and the brand. Yeah. I, I mean, it's kind of nice for people to design their own shit, but mostly I want the brand to tell me what I want. That's why, yes. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I like that relationship. I but, want the brand to think about it. I mean, every brand's had their own version of it, but ID is the only one that really took it mm-hmm. far. Um, I yeah. suppose. And I've been, I've I've made Nike IDs. I'm guilty of like having fun and playing around with it. But I think sometimes, if I can be critical, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble again because now it's even You're even a bigger cold. platform. But yeah. I just think sometimes they open the floodgates a little bit too early and too fast on stuff. Like they'll have just released this new shoe, and then I feel like in like weeks. It's like available for you to make your own on Nike ID. It's like, I want to hear Nike's, I want to hear Beaverton's point of view on this for like 
I mean, and I know I'm an old head, but like, I want to see that for years, like five years, 10 years before you open the floodgates. Like I get Air Force One, but like not the, not the 270 or the 720 that just came out last year and now you're letting me play with it already. Yeah. I think it also, it also meant that instead of feeling like you knew every version of that shoe, all mm-hmm. of a sudden there's a million variations. Yes. And so is that a fake or a, exactly. that, where did that color come yeah, from? Yeah. You go out to a club and you're like, whoa, I'm, oh, you just made that. Last week on that yeah. ID, got you. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather that you went and got that somewhere that was hard to get or, you know, that meant something, especially in those early days when, yeah. you know, before you could just buy everything right. online. You had to physically go and do something. Yeah, to, exactly. To and if there was a color variant, it was a really special thing or reason behind it. Like, you're wearing the linens right now. These are, these are grails to a lot of people. Imagine this exact shade was available on ID. And it might very well be. I don't know if it is. but And you saw some 15-year-old, like, rocking a fresh minty pair but it, it had the ID on the insole, you'd be like, you'd be so pissed. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think as well, you know, kids who love shoes and collect them and might have 100 pairs or whatever, they're really into it. They're checking their information every day or whatever, but still to be able to do their own version of it or something, it's a massive challenge, right? <laughs> to, and I, I Most found of it's it, garbage. <laughs> yeah, well, I found also with our own collaborations, you know, doing something recently, shit, i got 20 years of sneaker Knowledge. knowledge yeah. Of how do I find a little gap where no one's been before, either with the story, the materials, or the mostly the colorway, right? Yeah. I do something I think is really good, and then I see one of the guys in the office go, oh, that's the same as Ronnie's volcano. <laughs> you can't do that. And I go, fuck. I know. Damn it. Totally. Damn it. Why does it look so good? Oh, because it's been done before. Ugh, you know, it's the worst. But also, you know, we've, we've always had certain color combinations. I mean, I hate to color purple, but we use it all the time. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I still haven't psychoanalyzed myself to work out what is <laughs> going on there. Why you keep using it? Deep down, you, you actually love what it. What is going on with purple? I don't wear anything purple, but shoes, it looks, I, I'm drawn to it. Yeah, yeah. So take us now to, to modern day, sort of your assessment of where sneaker culture is going now. Are you fully sold on the fact that there will not be a burst of a bubble happening? Or is this ending anytime soon? Or now you're like convinced... This will go on in perpetuity. Yeah. I mean, it's been interesting the last few years, hasn't it? Because we've seen a total flip of the power ratio between Nike and Adidas in particular. So, you know, two years ago, Addy was flying and then all of a sudden they've just been ground to a halt recently. So <laughs> Nike's reasserted, I'm going to get a call, aren't I? You're going to get a call, Woody. <laughs> well, you're actually talking. Look, no, I'm not saying anything what, that me, no one knows. No, so. but let me, let me clarify your perspective because... What you just said is actually very recent news. I think to a layman out there, like if you just go to a mall in the middle of a, if the country, most of the kids who are there will probably think that Adi is hot right now. Like they're still of the mindset that like, no, Adi's back. Like it came back. It's David and Goliath. They dismantled the giant. You're talking like futures, like you've seen holiday 19 already you know what i mean like you're seeing what's coming so your assessment is a little is a little inside but go ahead continue well yeah sometimes so you, go you on, don't go know on. you said you know. adi grind to a halt go on <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying uh yeah okay i'll cross them off my christmas list for a couple of years yeah uh, I, I guess you know having seen you know having watched it every day for such a long time mm-hmm. and i'm no different than retailers or the people who work at brands as well i mean we're all studying it yeah some people we see it from every angle Mm-hmm. I think that's the luxury of, you know, being on the media side. But um, it's interesting to me that those two brands can't both be up at the same time. You know, if it was a boxing match, yeah. one's always dominant, you know, yeah. for whatever reason. And Nike just went to sleep for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that happen in terms of 
company structure or their strategy or whatever it is. I know that they set a really high objective. We said that we wanted to be what a fifty billion company or yeah. something. What is that? What it was or. Did they just no, go, I think it's we're going to be quiet for a couple no, of years? No, I think it's success. You rest on your laurels. It's natural. Right. To me, it's a natural human thing. I think it's happening to Apple right now. Apple is right now, in my opinion, asleep at the wheel. Yeah, but you can't invent the iPad every no, it's not about three that. years or something. Can I don't you? want to get into an Apple conversation, but I do think that like when you are so big and so high and so alone at the top of the mountain it's hard to drive yourself to keep going to the next plateau. You know, innovation starts to die, you know, like interesting things start to die. And then it takes an Audi to do a little like NMD, Ultra Boost, Yeezy. And every, all of a sudden Nike turns around, they're like, holy shit, this guy that we left in the dust is now like actually within spitting distance. And that reinvigorates everything to happen. It's a good thing to me. No, it is a good thing. And yeah. I, I, I mean- Status, you know, maintaining the status quo endlessly is boring. So mm-hmm. that's why it has been so interesting, just even in the last eighteen months. But if if you look at the content on our blog at the moment, I mean, Nike, it's amazing as a company. They're swarming, right? It's just it's chaotic stuff coming at you left, right, and center. You've got yep. things happening in all all these different, you know, the major markets, but also innovations looking strong. Yeah, like it's just they've got their game back, and it's it, it <laughs> it's, reminds me of two thousand and two, or yes. you know, or whatever. Because you, you go, shit, they got their mojo back. They got their Isn't mojo back. Isn't it amazing? Back. Yeah, like fifteen stories a day, and we're not covering everything. Uh huh. You know, even just, their advertising is back. Like the ads are like, yeah, maybe giving got me the goosebumps atti- again. Got the attitude back as yeah, well. Yeah. I mean, they've always been a supremely arrogant company, mm-hmm. and it comes through. And you know, when Nike's doing really well. Let's say I went into the local office. Even the receptionist would give me attitude. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But, you know, for a while there, it's like, you know, they just didn't, they didn't have that. The swag. So, yeah, yeah. You know, so studying those things like on the everyday is, is kind of interesting. But within that, you know, you've got small brands coming mm-hmm. in. Like I love seeing someone like filling pieces. Yeah. So I know how hard it is to be an indie mm-hmm. in the scene. I mean, we saw Gourmet. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have tried and it's really hard to break through. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm excited when I found out how big filling, piece, filling pieces had become, yeah. even more respect to them. Yep. So there's new guys. I also give a lot of respect to like brands like Fila, who took like just an old dead trademark and actually was able to make a business out of it again. You know, that's amazing. Um, and then you've got the other huge player, which didn't exist before, which is luxury. And I wanted to know, do you think luxury is a trend? Do you think these LVs and Balenciagas and Gucci's are going to be like one day, yeah, we've, we've had it with the sneaker kids. Yeah, I mean that's an that's an alien world to me. Um, Do you in some not ways. cover that? Do you not? No, we cover it. Okay. We cover it a lot, and also because you know we have Sebastian here who's eighteen. Yeah, and when I look at him, I mean, I'm excited through his eyes because this stuff that he's vibing on mm-hmm. is not stuff that I would wear. But yeah. I don't want him to live my recycled memories either. Like, yeah, I don't want him not. to have the yeah, same yeah. shit that I had. Right. Um, so you know, I was talking to him yesterday. We're driving around, and he's like, oh, "I bought this from here," and I'm, oh, he cracked how to buy stuff from a Japanese auction site that so many times I just thought, oh, that's just impossible. Mm-hmm. But he'd found a drop shipper that will buy it for him, send it to the, take a photo. If he doesn't like it, they send it back. And anyway, he's, he's just so industrious yeah. and he's worked it all out. Um, and I know that the Triple S is a really amazing piece of design. Mm-hmm. It's not for me. I can't wear it. Yeah. But I can still see the beauty in a lot of those products. Yeah. It's going to be interesting in five to ten years to look back on that era and mm-hmm. I think we'll all have a bit of a laugh about it. Yeah. Um, but there's no doubt at the moment. I mean, if you go back, let's say when Kanye did the LV shoes, mm-hmm. kind of that's that's a pretty pivotal moment, right? In yep. 
of drag, you know, draw, dragging those two things together. Yes. Dapper Dan fits into that narrative. Yep. He's came back. Um, and then you've got, um, you know, all of a sudden, I think the price point between $2,000 for a, for a pigeon or whatever, um, um, that gap between super luxury mm-hmm. is totally closed, right? Yeah. There's no, there's no big price barrier anymore for no. these kids to get into it. So right. it's no longer attainable. Plus, how many more Gucci stores are there in the world or Vuitton mm-hmm. stores? Like before, you know, it's quite hard to get that stuff. Yeah. So now it's everywhere. Right. Yeah. So do you think that looking into the future of five to 10 years, right, do you see a world where it's just like, basically, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, are we at an oversaturation point? Like, is there just too much coming out from all these different brands? Like, we have two feet. There's 365 days in the year. Like, outside of doing multiple shoe changes throughout your day, like where you have like a morning, afternoon, and evening set, I mean, how many shoes can we possibly consume? Just out of Jordan alone or Nike alone, there's enough drops to make you choke. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) You know when you can get through a decade and not wear the same twice pair twice. You know, you know you've got a problem. Damn, a decade! So, wow, you had that. Oh well, yeah, shoes do you have now? Well, I don't know. See that cage over there? That's kind of full. I've always thought, yeah, that'd be enough. But I filled it within sort of twelve months. Um, I just did a big cleanse. Actually, I I got rid of a lot of stuff because it was. Do just you know your number? Ah, oh, this uh, thousands more than you'd need. Do you have outside? Do you have like besides this cage? Do you? Have oh, I've other- probably got six hundred pairs at home sitting okay. there as well so yeah but i mean it's it's kind of corny to talk about volume because i'm in the industry you know i'm a yeah i'm not a civilian anymore i'm a i'm right. a mercenary so yeah yeah i still buy stuff i Me mean i probably buy like two pairs a month or something at least i find great enjoyment in buying shoes at retail yeah and clothing <laughs> is my plug they don't give what do you mean clothing uh, is your plug well i think they're the best store to buy from and they do free shipping clothing stores and no. and Oh, and clothing is yeah. your plug. I see. Okay. And yeah. clothing. Shout out. And I'm always clothing. looking at it. Oh, man, I think I need that pair of Air Force Ones. Bang. Yeah. And they, yeah, they get here in three days. So going back to the oversaturation, do you feel like there'll be a reset button? Do you ever foresee a day where Nike, Jordan, Adi, luxury brands, you know what? Let's go back to like 12 SKUs a season. No, I mean, I, I don't. I think it's all, there's too many brands, too many shoes. There's, there's no doubt it's been oversaturated for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyone who tries to muscle in like feeler or whatever, they've got to take a Nike off the wall or they've yeah. got to own a little spot. Yes. So they were able to do that with that big chunky shoe mm-hmm. um, sort of thing. Um, so the challenge for them is what comes next? How do you build on that yeah. and maintain it? Yep. Um, Which is innovation. You got you to innovate. Well, you've got to have a crystal ball, right? You've got to yeah. kind of see where, what comes next. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, in the fashion thing already, we're starting to see, you know, the, the craziness subside. We're going, I think we'll go back into a sort of Stan Smith era of minimalism where you know when it goes crazy the only place to go is to strip it right back yeah, to go back to reset sort of not yeah. much to common projects or yep. something so there's no doubt that that crash is coming soon but also you know it's hard to even see trends in the market anymore i mean what isn't what shoe can't you buy yeah it used to be hey high tops are going to be big this year mm-hmm. great well if all the brands make high tops and they push it well, that's probably what it'll be. Yeah, right. Everyone's trying to figure out what to do next. So the best way to do that is to have everything for sale at all the time Yeah. <laughs> so that the stores can just get what they want. Uh-huh. And it kind of, you know, you start to wonder, like, what is the dominant shoe at the moment? Yeah, what, or, or put another way, what is actually out of style right now? It's like, I think anything you can find some pocket of a regional distribution or, or channel where the corniest thing you could possibly think of is trending in that, in that part of the world right now. 
Yeah, I mean, we saw with Addy recently, I mean, that superstar was flying, Stan mm-hmm. Smith was killing it. Yeah. Off the back of that, they had Flux. You know, it just, it all just got on a roll. I think it's more about the brand at the moment, how hot the brand is and how it's being Very good observation. than it is on any particular model. But mm-hmm. Nike's always had, Air Max could be its own company. Company, You know, yeah. really, if you think about it, let alone Jordan, let alone Vintage Running or mm-hmm. Air Force One could probably have been its own company there for a while too. Yeah, yeah. There's so many new versions of it. I mean, it's really hard for those smaller companies now, I think. Yeah. I think the retailers are less less into risk yep. um, carrying weird styles or something that mm-hmm. don't have that cosign from a rapper or yeah. whatever. You know, I think that's the mark of this young generation is they're very influenced by what they see other people wearing. Whereas yeah. I think we were fortunate to grow up in an era when we developed our own sense of style. Like I love all those ACG hiking shoes. Mm-hmm. They've never been on trend really, I right. mean, little pockets of it. But no, but you're right. Yeah. Today, unless Kanye's wearing it or whoever, mm-hmm. um, how do those kids kind of see value in that? Yeah. I mean, they don't see the beauty of abstract design or something. They're just looking for some little totem of cool that they can kind of attach themselves to. Yep. It's not a criticism of it. I, mean, I think that's just the reality of it. There's no doubt about it. Woody is a veteran in the sneaker world especially the hype era that's taken over today. He knows the early history of many brands. He's been in the subculture that many people like myself grew up on and participated in. And he's got the knowledge to understand bigger trends that are happening right now as we speak. Woody is able to make these interesting observations because of the decades of knowledge he's had through Sneaker Freaker. Where will sneakers go in 10 years? What will be the next hot shoe? Who really knows But what we're seeing today may be reminiscent of something in past sneaker cycles or something we've seen in other sectors. The really great thing about Woody is how well-versed he is. It's not just the core brands he pays attention to. Anyone and everyone can rattle off some facts about today. Woody is interested in what everyone, from the giants to the independents, are doing. This goes back to his original notion that if you're going to say something and if you're going to be the sneaker guy, you got to come correct and know it all. This type of thinking separates someone from the rest of the pack. Obsess over the knowledge, know the obvious and the obscure. No matter what industry you might be involved in, make sure you understand every single aspect of that business inside and out. All right, I'm going to ask you the question that I hate getting asked the most. You already asked the how many shoes question. I don't hate the other one. The other one is... There's one shoe that you have to pull out of your burning house. You have to take one pair of shoes with you. Or the other variation of this question is you're on a a desert island and you have to have one shoe with you on this island. What is the one shoe that you're going to take with you for all time? This is the shoe that you have to wear to the end of your life. And I'm on a desert island? Uh, No, it's more about the one shoe you have to wear every day for the rest of your life. I, I mean, I would just stick with Air Force Ones. Yeah, you're not Air even Force not even like Air, white on whites. I've never not even white on white. Do you color. want to get specific with the color? Well, I mean, I've, I'm kind of wearing them today. It's not necessarily a coincidence or anything, but I still think the linen is still something crazy about beige and pink. Wow, you know, it's still striking. And I mean, this is the Ronnie one from from a few years back. I oh, this have, is the Ronnie version. I have the originals, um, but they're starting to look a little bit. Um, haggard. Yeah, I mean, I'd stick with the Air Force Ones. When you're a chunky guy, that says you need a lot a chunky about shoe. you, man. Well, I haven't I'm, really I'm evolved much. I'm shocked at this answer. Really? Yes. I'm shocked that you pick Air Force One, and I'm shocked that you pick the linens as the shoe you'll wear to, to the day you die. 
Well, <laughs> I, you know, when you mentioned really earlier, I probably missed this story, but it's, it's in the, actually the, the ultimate sneaker book in the Air Force One section. When I first went to New York in about 89 or 90 or something, um, I reckon I was somewhere around Canal Street, mm-hmm. just walking around. I pretty much spent the whole week just looking up at the scale of everything, you know, yeah. not looking at feet. But all of a sudden I looked in this window and there's a sneaker store. Mm. I don't remember any sign on the window. I don't even think it had a name. But, you know, that's Canal Street still got all the yeah. bogus LV bag sellers and yep. that stuff, right? So it's still that's right in that pocket. And I walk in, I'm backpacking. I think I was going to Jamaica straight mm-hmm. afterwards. I, was like, I do not need to buy five pairs of shoes. But I sweated for probably two hours in there. End up buying black canvas with the May swoosh. And I carted those shoes. Those shoes, I only threw them out a few years ago and I still regret it. They were completely gone. The toes had worn through, the heels had totally wore off. So that shoe and that being a quintessential sort of New York shoe has always stayed with me. Yeah. Um, and, and the memory of Canal Street and all that stuff. Yeah, right? just being in there and right. not the mystery of it, not knowing where I was or why I was looking. A little bit of danger, yeah. Those things. But <laughs> I'd also lived in London and um, you know, lived, worked in the middle of Soho. So, I mean, Fraser's, I think Fraser Cook, but Passenger, right? Or one of those, there was a couple of stores that were buying and selling bits and pieces from New York and mm-hmm. Tokyo. And I would always go in there at lunchtime yeah. and see what they had. I bought quite a few shoes in there. The old winter balls, uh-huh. those Adidas ones with the big chunky rubber toe. Yeah, yeah. Um, like some of those shoes are really important to me because mm-hmm. they come at that right time when you become an adult and you can buy what you want. That's yeah. such a thrilling uh, part of your life where you don't have to rely on your parents to buy stuff for you. Yep, it is a special moment. So yeah, yeah Air Force One's mean a lot to me, surprisingly. Since I'm, I'm not into basketball, you know, mm-hmm. has no, that has no affiliation. I right. mean, it does, um, you know, intellectually yeah. because it's where the shoe comes from. But, but not as a childhood. Not for emotion. me, yeah. Right, right. Cool. All right. There's your choice. All right, man. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Jeff. Good yeah. to talk. I'm going to let you go to the swap meet now. All right. You're right. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to this episode with the sneakerhead OG, Simon Woody Wood of Sneaker Freaker. As always, you can find out more about the show and listen to other episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I personally use Anchor FM. And leave a comment. Tell us what you think of the show. Give us a rating. Share the news and tell a friend about the show. It definitely helps out. We do occasionally answer listener questions on the show. So if you have a question, shoot it over on Twitter. I am at Jeff Staple. The Business of Hype is created in collaboration with Bright Young Things. You can check out their work at byt.nyc. Our director is Daniel Nevetta. Our audio engineer is David Rogers Berry. Our associate producers are Sydney Pacumpera and Christina Hong. This episode was recorded at Sibling Rivalry Studio and on location in Melbourne, Australia at the Sneaker Freaker headquarters. I am Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hypebeast Radio.